Brittany, who do we have with us today? We have Jean-Luc Zender. He is the co-CEO and uh, co-founder of Vertido. Vertido. I like it. Jean-Luc, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm glad to be on the show. Looking forward to having a nice chat with both of you. I know Renu a bit better than, than I know you, Michael, so, but uh, <laughs> I'm hoping this, gonna, this is going to change in the next couple of not hours, but probably next hour, I would say. Let's do that. Before we get into the main part of this conversation, I would love to get some of your background for context. All right. So I'm 42 years old, happily married, father of three. Oh, wow. Therefore, slightly sleep deprived, I would say. <laughs> and will be for, for a while, last, probably. For the last seven years, yeah. Um as Renu mentioned, I'm the co-CEO and co-founder of Virtido. Virtido is a Swiss headquartered IT talent acquisition platform. So Interesting. we have uh, delivery centers in Eastern Europe. And obviously there's a huge demand for IT talent in Switzerland, uh, neighboring countries. We even have some clients in Singapore. So this is a bit what we do at the moment. And we started Virtido seven, yes, already seven years ago. Wow. Nowadays, I think now we are three partners, owners and uh, founders, and then we overall, we have 140 staff. That's a lot. What were, uh, you, what were you doing before Vertido? I was a management consultant uh, with one of the big four, PwC, okay. in Zurich and in London, and then moved to a family office only about for a year Interesting. and then started Vertido. So that's a bit uh, the background in a, in a, in a nutshell. What was your experience like at the family office, right? Because this is completely different than the consulting side, right? Yes. Um, very interesting. It was an operational family office. It's not like you invest into shares. It's really the, the, the family holds a lot of assets and you run and manage the assets. It's kind of a holding company and you're the man part of the management of those of those assets. So it's very operational which I liked a lot, uh, you know, kind of roll up the sleeves and dig into the work. This is really something I, I like a lot, having an impact. I love having this conversation with people that used to be at the big four um, consulting companies, right? Because I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets learned there that people outside of the consulting industry don't understand. And I think it's one of these things where like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Is, is that fair? Do you know what I mean? With all the stuff that they teach you about process and how to like look at businesses, do you feel like you can never unsee that stuff? Yeah, I fully agree with you. I mean, this is, it's kind of the base, the base uh, for your, for being an entrepreneur, you, you, you learn a lot there, you see a lot of different companies, you see perfect textbook examples, you see bad examples, uh, you have, uh, <laughs> and I think most importantly, you get a very strong network. I think that's probably the most, most important uh, impact of, of of working for one of such a such a big company. It's just a, when you start the business, you already have some clients in Heto because you you know whom to approach. They would pick up the phone, and it helps you a lot. You know, starting a business. Yeah, fully fully agree with you. So, if seven years ago I asked you, is this what you would be doing now? What would your answer have been? <laughs> I don't have a master plan for my life, so I, I probably would have told you, let's see what the future will will bring. And uh, I always had when I turned thirty, that was about three years into my professional life. I was said would be great to have your own company when you turn forty. Uh, mm -hmm. That's something I, I, you know, that was 
something I said and uh, kind of a, a vision I had. So when I turned 42 years ago, I was actually quite happy to have have my own company, be being your own boss and, and do things you really want to do. Um, but other than that, you, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I'm quite, mm -hmm. quite flexible in that sense. And I don't have a massive plan for my life. Is entrepreneurship in your family or is this something where like when you got the job at PwC, the family's happy, it looks like you're going to be stable, you start building a family and when you make the decision to leave, people are like, what are you doing? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's the latter. So <laughs> Isn't it always? <laughs> yes, they were a bit shocked. <laughs> were they no, really I mean, though? I, you know what I mean? No, I mean, you know, they have great parents, great family. They're both teachers. So, you know, they have never started their own business. Um, uh, also, my sister's a teacher, my brother's a doctor. So I, 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 we don't really have this entrepreneurial background. Uh, although I have to say my, my brother has his own um, practice, yeah. practice now. Yeah. So he's kind of an entrepreneur, but it's a different mindset. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to do marketing as a doctor. They just come and come to your practice. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's new for our family. Um, but, you know, they've been very supportive. They obviously challenged my decision, but eventually um, I had, I, you know, we grew up in flexibility and freedom. We can do whatever we want and then they're supportive and they're super happy how things have developed over time. But, but, but of course, when I told them, you know, leaving PwC first for the family or unknown family office, you know, they, they were a bit, um, <laughs> yeah, they challenged a bit my decision. But that's fine. That's that's their job, you know. That's the parents' job, <laughs> for sure. Is it is it hard managing three kids and a startup? Though you're not a startup, you are a company now. Is it yeah. hard? Yes and no. I mean, it's it's great to have to be your own boss and um, drive your agenda. So I don't have a boss. I have clients. They drive my mm -hmm. agenda, but not yeah. only clients. <laughs> not, <laughs> so I have a certain flexibility. Um, which is great. So that helps a lot. I mean, just imagine, I couldn't imagine working now for, for, for the, for, for, for PwC. I mean, I had a good time. I could work there again, but now with small kids, it's very difficult because you don't have time for kids. Um, and so this, on that side, it's great. On the other side, um, you don't have the financial, of course, now after seven years, it's a different picture, but when you start a company, you don't have financial um, perspective right so you have a lot of mm -hmm. uncertainty and you have you have kids at home uh, gladly my wife works as well she's she's a teacher as well <laughs> so you know a lot of stability from the financial perspective it's a bit tougher at least when you start your own company now it's much better from the flexibility point of view it's great great to have that flexibility to drive the agenda of course you you need to be a bit close where you live you know you don't want to commute sure. it's just I live nearby. It's it's everything is very convenient around the corner. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about risk taking and maybe how your view on risk taking has changed over time as you've built your company out? I like to think that a lot of entrepreneurs also surf or skydive or play poker or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Is this also yeah. part of your life or have you learned to be more comfortable with the risk over time? Because when you start something from scratch, like you just don't know where it's going to go. It's in a way, it's super risky. Yeah, it is super risky. I'm not a skydiver, <laughs> I have to say. I'm not where you know. Even when I started uh, 
my own company didn't wear the rosy glasses in that sense. Yeah. I, I knew there's a lot of risks around and I wasn't naive in that sense. But to be honest, also in Switzerland, when you have a decent education background, it's still a, a nice bubble to live. So when you fail, it's easy to get a job. Um, you have some savings from your previous job. So I think there's a lot of buffer around. And once you realize that, then the risk is much lower. Let's be honest. Um, I didn't, you know, we, I, I, I was able to finance the company and, and my co-founder as well with, with the savings. We bootstrapped, we took on some consulting jobs to, to fund the company, which is which is nice. So no bank loans. Nice. Then you sleep easier, better, because, you, you know, when you fail, the worst thing that can happen, you take on a job and, and keep on working. That, that's fine, yeah. So did you consider yourself a startup when you first started doing this? And not in the sense of like, we need to scale this into a billion dollar business, right? But when you do start with a couple of founders from scratch, you did say the word bootstrapping. I talk to startups in Switzerland all the time, like all the time. And I'm curious how you see that that startup ecosystem has changed in the seven years that you've done this. And I look at other companies like InnoSwiss, Venture Lab, right? Companies out there. Uptown boss, like all these types of people that are trying to support new businesses, even new businesses that can scale into big things. How do you look at that from your perspective? I mean, it has changed a lot, which is great. Let's say when I graduated, it was very normal to take on a corporate job, you know, have some something on your CV and then potentially start your own company. Nowadays, I think startups compete with corporates, which is great for the graduates. Yeah. Um, graduates, I think have probably changed a bit their, their mindset. I think the, the latest generation, they want to do meaningful work. Mm. It's less about prestige. It's le less about money. It's more about doing something meaningful. I think that's something I sense a lot when I speak to the younger generation. And this also means that they're ready to take on a job, which is probably a bit less paid, but has a certain potential in the future, or at least provides you with a meaningful work. When I look at all the um, institutional let's say, platforms to accelerate or boost startups. This is great. This has also changed a lot. I mean, what's still quite difficult is get funding. And let's say private funding is not so easy to get in Switzerland, although there's a lot of money around. Mm. You always say in, in the US, you get funding for an idea or an idea. Right. In, in Switzerland, you get funding for an idea that has been implemented and already has some clients. So you get funding at the later stage. And sometimes I would welcome a bit from the investors, a higher risk tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. Tolerance and to, to bet on ideas and bet on the founders behind, behind them. I think Switzerland is heading into the right direction. Uh, great to see how many startups are, are kind of flourishing uh, have started in the last couple of years. And mm -hmm. I, I'm very happy with the latest development, but we have, we really had to make up uh, a lot of things because, uh, you know, the U S is obviously leading there with a different uh, attitude. and uh, But now I think Switzerland is heading into the right direction. So there's a lot of commentary, and I'll say uninformed commentary, about the startup ecosystem in Japan. And you'll see where I'm going in a second, right? Where, again, some of the biggest pools of savings in the whole world, but not a lot of risk capital. But part of the reason is cultural and structural in the sense mm -hmm. that if you fail in Japan, if you go bankrupt, if you take investors' money and you fail, it's punitive, like almost lifetime punitive. And I don't know enough about Switzerland to understand if that's the same thing. And I'm curious, again, is this a cultural thing? Is it a legal framework thing? Is it a bunch of different things? Like what's driving this? I think it's a cultural thing. It's also 
well, obviously I live in a, in a German part of Switzerland. So, you know, the values you get from your parents is that you start, whenever you earn money, you also start immediately saving some money to have something aside. So it's a very cautious approach, right? You don't overspend. Credit cards are still evil, uh, which they are. <laughs> I agree. Um, <laughs> yes. a talk, a nonsense. I always feel like when I use a credit card, I'm paying twice. Yes. Right? Like I've already paid and then I have to pay again kind of feeling. Uh, it's a different story, but let's say two seconds on the credit cards. Why do you need a credit card? Because there is a debit card, right? Yeah. And if there's enough money, there's a fine. But the credit card is just constructed by the financial industry to make sure you don't, you every now and then get in debt and then you pay the, the interest. So it's just a constructed thing. And anyway, let's close that chapter. Can I say one thing really quickly and then just don't lose your train of thought? So I'm in Singapore right now, right? And... I just take cash out of the bank and I go into a restaurant or I go into a store and they're like, we don't take cash here. And I'm having this like back and forth with them about your government has issued this currency and you're telling me you don't accept it. I have to pay by credit card. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what it is. Anyway. There's also like new financial systems, like uh, we have to pin to whatever yeah. they're not linked to credit cards. So my train of thoughts. Yes. So as I said, it's a cautious approach and you're raised like this by your parents right. and um, failure is more and more accepted, but still I think it's also sometimes I experience in, in, in my own thinking, when you, you see someone starting his or her, her own business, right. you probably say, oh, I don't, I don't believe in it. You know, it's always a bit the negative thought instead of saying, yeah, let's give it a try and let's see what happens. Interesting. Uh, I think because you have baby shower parties, but you should have like, um, uh, <laughs> like entrepreneurial shower parties for everyone who starts his or her business to help them. Where have I heard know, this before? Maybe, maybe to, to start, you know, to offer some network because it's a great thing when you decide to start your own company but still a bit negative people are kind of surrounded by these negative thoughts which should change and will change and is changing now but if you fail of course this is a kind of a stamp on your cv and you have to live with it but i think it's probably also a bit self-inflicted i mean if you can live with it then that's fine because other people won't judge you on this. They will probably ask you, well, what happened? Tell me more about it. But then it's done. It's a chapter in your life mm. nowadays. But I think it's more in inflicted by your own personality, whether you live with it or not. So, yeah. I want to go back oh, yeah. to that question on investors, right? I don't think it's a question of, can we change that? The question is, how can we change that? From your you know, past years, what is needed to make them change beyond the cultural mindset and where they are now right because i think yeah. you have to change we are we live in a global world where talent is can be picked from anywhere difficult question i mean we also have in the vc area we also had some bubbles let's be honest in the last couple of years we had some bubbles in the us where too much money went into bad companies let's be honest great example is we work right i mean they just simply rent office space and and sell it again uh, through a platform and you have a lot of fixed costs. It's, it's just a nonsense business model yeah, for me I'm as well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we had some bubbles in there as well. So saturation. So I understand why some investors are a bit cautious, but in Switzerland, I think it's more, if you, as an investor, I think you, you shouldn't think about the case. You should think about who is behind that case. And is this a capable person? If, if you believe in that person, even a, 
not not a great business model I think can turn out. So I think it's it's more about this personality driven concepts or support that that should change a bit. And not always well you have a business and I already need seven customers and you always already need profitable just nonsense. I don't have the the golden key to that question. Don't know how to push this. Maybe it's also regulatory it probably would help if pensions with pension companies could invest some small fraction of their wealth into startups. I think that would change a lot. I you see that in the in the Nordics where you I think they only invest one percent of the total wealth into mm-hmm. alternative and startups, and that changes a lot. They have more VCs who can obviously get the money and invest the money. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe that's something as well. Do you have a view on the startup world as a, if I understand what Vertido does, you said IT talent acquisition, right? Is some of the stuff that you do accumulating teams for startup companies that are all over the world? You did mention having I think if I remember correctly, you do mention having staff in Eastern Europe as well, which is kind of a um, a very strong source of talent or startup companies globally, right? Because strong technical education, but a little bit of uh, payment arbitrage, right? Or salary arbitrage going under. Do you have a view on what's happening there? And what does like the supply demand curve look like to you? When let's say prospects approach us, usually it's, it's like three factors. Factor number one is availability. So basically some calculations is a lack of more than 200,000 IT developers in Switzerland only, Switzerland only, which is a very small country. Yeah. So it's, it's availability. I mean, if, if you start your own company as a startup, if you're corporate, you don't find IT talent in Switzerland. That's number one. That's a key driver. Second is speed of recruiting. That means uh, in Switzerland, you have uh, resignation periods. If you, I mean, usually it takes three to six months, whilst in Eastern Europe, you have two to four weeks. Um, so it's very dynamic. And the third one is cost. Whilst, to be honest, no one approaches us because of cost um, arbitrage, because nowadays it's really about, it's only about availability. Really? And of course, mm-hmm. of course you have some cost benefits, but it's, it's really, I mean, most of our clients would love to hire people in Switzerland, but they can't, they simply don't find them. And we are option alternative B they turn to because they say either I, I stop my company or I seek for alternative options. And it's never, if someone approaches us just because of cost reasons, we usually won't work with them because then they also treat the people not in the right way. You Mm -hmm. you cannot Mm -hmm. treat them as as an extended workbench. They have to be fully integrated. They have integrated no second-class employees. Our Eastern European talent, they get probably calls every week from uh, headhunting companies. So then it's not about getting just some money and that's it. They have to be fulfilled. They want to be happy in their work. They need to be appreciated. Anything else than that doesn't work. So this is such a great concept, right? And I love this answer. I think it was a year ago, and maybe even starting a year and a half ago, there was a company in Silicon Valley called Turing. And Turing's whole premise was that they were going to hire developers for Silicon Valley-based companies and US-based companies in India and Vietnam, in Indonesia, wherever, where there was a salary arbitrage. And you know, I come out of a market background. We talked about this before, right? I worked at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs for 20 years. If there's an arbitrage available, it's always going to close. Right. And like you said, your talent in Eastern Europe are saying, yeah, maybe like five years ago, six years ago, you could pay us less. But if you're not treating us well, we keep getting phone calls, which that's the arbitrage closing. Right. Yeah, and people exactly. saying, yeah. And people saying, not only will we treat you better, but we'll pay you better. And then you see this evening out of salaries globally, which frankly is good for 
everybody in the world. Are you seeing this happening as well? Yes, I see that that happening. And there's obviously sometimes, again, you have some inflated costs. I mean, like like last year before the crisis in Eastern Europe started, um, oh, right. we had some cost inflations. But then also, you know, when the Fed started increasing their, their rates, uh, the tech companies had some issues in the, in the US. So they stopped hiring people. Uh, and before that, we had some spikes in, in the salary inflation. So you have you have these spikes and then you have some downturns. It's normal. But in general, yes, it's leveling out. I, I fully agree with you. And talent is global. Uh, we live in a global world. Uh, so we have, you work in remote teams. And especially in high-cost countries like in Switzerland, as, as a mid-level manager, I think sometimes you face a lot of competition. Believe you're in a stable environment, but... Of course, you are in a stable environment, but I mean, sometimes a mid-level manager in, in Spain or earning maybe 40% less would do probably the job better. So I think, especially in, in high-earning countries, I think mid-level management has to be careful to make sure they still differentiate uh, with other well-educated people, you know. One of the things that I struggle with managing a remote team is trying to have the right balance of what's the right word? Like strictness, right? Like I need to have this done. I need to have it done right. I need to have the details monitored. I need to do this but because it's not face to face. I always say like email and chat doesn't have a tone of voice. Yeah. Right. So I could say to you, like, please get that done ASAP typing it out, but it could sound super mean. But if I see you in person, I could just say, Hey, can you please get that done ASAP? Cause I need it for this, that, and the other thing. Right. So how do you manage that? Because I'm always worried about like what it's going to come across like, and I, I can't manage that sort of, what's the right word? Like that, that mental balance between like what I need and how you feel about what I need. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we call, we, we do a lot of nearshoring. Nearshoring means um, you can fly three, four, two hours, and you have the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face every now and then. Right. You're culturally quite close. These are very important elements. So A, we have every now and then face-to-face -face meetings. We encourage our clients to do so. Either they fly, either our staff flies to wherever our clients sit or vice versa. So you have a, a personal relationship, which is very important. Once yeah. you have a personal relationship, you, you have a trust level. And then, you know, things happen if they have to happen, ASAP. And culturally-wise, culturally -wise, you're close, so you know a bit what to expect. A yes is a yes, and then always a no, and not something in between. So this is a bit our concept. We also have some developers in the Philippines. We are testing this now, uh, which, which are, it's just for us new. We want to test it. But for that, I don't have a conclusion yet. I, I know what we do in Nearshoring has a lot of benefits, and, and it's, it's especially the two I mentioned. Uh, being really those face-to-face -face meetings are still important. And I, I can tell you, once you have a beer with them and you, when you meet them, right. you get, you, you know, you get the things, they tell you things they wouldn't tell you on a video call. It's just different. Uh, be it just about private stuff, be it something that bothers yeah. them. Uh, you can have like this, you have the, the opportunity to build up a trusting relationship. It's very important. I, I talk about, can I just say this? I, I talk about this a lot, right? When I was at Morgan Stanley in the earliest part of my career, I worked in, let's just say, the fixed income group. And I've said this before, but I'm curious what you think about this. And what it meant back then was that the guys that were in the equity group were all idiots, right? I call this the other side of the mountain syndrome. Now, they obviously weren't, 
And then if one of them actually left the equity group and came into the fixed income group, well, now they were geniuses, right? Because they're on our team kind of thing. And the guys that they left and the gals that they left suddenly turned into idiots. This is normal human behavior, right? And I think it impacts the way people feel. And you even said this earlier, like, if you go back and work at a big company, it's different than having your own business with the three kids and, you know, your wife also, or your partner also works, all this kind of stuff. Like, as a company manager, as a company runner, right? You have to think about every, because I think it was my grandfather who told me this, right? When you get married, you don't only marry one person. You marry that entire family. And in a way, it's the yeah. same thing. When you hire somebody, you're hiring their whole family as well, right? So they have all these other connections to them. Do you think about this when it comes to the sort of physical, mental, emotional health of the people that you're working with, if you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, whenever you meet them, it's not because I'd want to do it just for the company. I'm also genuinely interested mm -hmm. in, in people. So yeah. when I, whenever we meet, I want to know, get to know the person. I want to get to know family situation. Maybe they have some hard, hardship uh, we can support. You know, sometimes it's just fun. Some get married, get invited to weddings. Uh, sometimes you go, sometimes you can't. It's important. I mean, especially those very close around you so top management those with those you you work daily you you want to know them and it's it's for me it's really a genuine interest for me it doesn't matter what, whether i own a company or work in a, in a for a corporate big right. corporate it's mm -hmm. i think it's for me just the basics uh, it's just you know having an emotional relationship with the person is very important it's getting i think this is actually getting more and more important as we live in a virtual life virtual world we are not computers we are not machines we are human beings right. and i think in order to differentiate versus machines we have to tap on this emotional path you know this is very important that's how you can differentiate so yeah. how much more bigger can you go with the personal touch because you're right now at 140 and yeah. i miss you know you want to grow so at one point you become 500 yes. and then it would be very hard to keep that personal touch just it's not possible in your mind do you have any numbers or you just like how you don't have a plan, you're just waiting to see where it lands. <laughs> well, our business is fully scalable. This can grow up to 10,000, to be honest. It's fully, fully scalable, but I see it as a, as a nexus. So you start from the top, you have your, your top management and you kind of radiate this kind of vibe which is needed for the company. It's called culture, yeah. <laughs> company culture. culture. Yeah. Some companies write it down as a vision, but I think you need to, this is just how you are and how you live and how you work. I think this is leading by example. And then top management and the, the management layer below, they also live like this. And sometimes you need to correct that. You know, you also can't accept managers who don't behave like they should. So there you need to be very consistent and tell them either uh, you, I always give them one or two chances but then you need to change something because otherwise you're not kind of consistent anymore so I think it's really leading by example but then you can scale it up I think and you can truly scale it up like um, advantage so we do like dedicated teams so higher resources for clients or we do manage teams where we develop where that's basically outsourcing so clients tell us please develop this application for us right. so if it's dedicated team then let's say it's also in a menage a trois you say in french it's like we're part of i mean it's it's our client yeah. works directly with the developers the team and it's us being also involved as a part hr function so you're three and you need to work together 
and there obviously also the cultural influence is a bit driven by the company by the client do you here's the thing and i'm really curious about this do you think that company culture drives innovation and as a team as a management team do you talk about company culture my business partner and i talk about this all the time when we see bad company culture somewhere else we point it out to each other and just say let's never do that we wrote down we just hired a bunch of people and we literally wrote down 10 things that we super cared about and we walked them through it on day one here are the things that we care about with quality being the top one and a bunch of other things so i'm just curious if you talk about this and if you think it helps on the innovation side as well and then i'll let you go not that specifically i would say we we talk about company culture we talk about how you should behave and mm -hmm. if someone doesn't behave like this then we obviously try to correct that yep but and i think we have a failure is accepted so if someone mistakes are accepted that's sure. totally fine sure, sure, sure. just don't do them three times yeah but i mean we don't we don't scream at each other if some something uh, you know fails something hap happened you couldn't uh, believe that happening so there we have a lot a great culture of, of accepting some failures and mistakes but we don't do it specifically like you do saying hey these are the th three points of course we see a lot of different companies and and we sometimes we say hey this is a great example how to foster innovation. So right. why let's let's pick it up and, and use it for our own company. Yeah. I'm new at this. You've been doing it for seven years. I've been doing it for like seven minutes, right? So it's not even a fair comparison. We're just trying to figure out like what the right thing to do mm -hmm. is. And we don't know yet. Anyway, this was really awesome. Jean-Luc Zender, a co-founder and a co-CEO of Vertido. Did I pronounce that right? Thank you so much for doing this today. Thanks a lot for having me. Very interesting. Um, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you.